You know, every once in a while you're in a worship service that it can only be described as heaven came down our souls to greet and glory crown the mercy seat. Amen? Every once in a while the music and just our, our desire, our, the events of the week, whatever, just kind of coalesce around worship and praise. And it's something sometimes that slips up on us and we end up praising God when we really hadn't planned on doing that. <laughs> we were just coming to church today. And so today, I believe, is one of those days, as we've heard from Les, how God has just miraculously, in many ways, done some things and is continuing to do some things. And then we have a wonderful uh, time of praise, and uh, then we get to the point of, of the sermon. And I want to ask you a question this morning, because I think it kind of it follows along with where we are right now. We talk a lot about loving God. I preach it. You teach it. This church lives it. But what does it mean? When we say we love God, what does that really mean? I mean, we're for it. If we put it to a vote, it'd be better than 94%. It'd be 100%. We talk about it, and we want to do it. It's not that we don't want to do it, but it's just sometimes it's hard to, to get our mind and heart around that concept of what it means to really love God. Well, you have a wonderful interim pastor. who's smart enough not to make this up. How do you love God? You go to the book. The book tells us how to love God. And so this morning, if you've got a copy of God's Word, if you don't, you ought to. Because <laughs> the messages are going to be right out of this book. You ought to have a copy of the Word of God so you can look down and see if you iPhone, iPad, I don't care what you got. If you got an old one like me, you got a book. But you ought to be able to look down and see what the Bible says. Meet me, if you will, in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, a marvelous, marvelous chapter in the Word of God. And Luke chapter 10 is one of those chapters that is just packed with information. Now, all the Word of God is that way, but there's certain familiarity we have with some of the things in Luke chapter 10. And because of that, when you see them all in one place, it just kind of goes, wow, look at all of that, all packed in one, one chapter. Uh, Luke chapter 10 talks about several different things. And the thing that makes it interesting to me is the rapidity with which it moves from one to another. I mean, it flows uh, from, from verse 1 all the way to the end with a continuing saga and story. And all along the way, there are certain verses that just leap off the page at us. Uh, we see here in, in verse 2 that it talks about the laborers are few. The harvest is plenteous, but the laborers are few. We see on down in a little bit uh, the, the fact that the, the verse 7 that the preachers like that, uh, that a minister is worthy of his, his labor. And then we, we get on down even further down to verse 11. It says, when you go and, and you, you're not received, 
shake the dust off and move on. Go somewhere else. Uh, don't spend your time. Somebody has said it this way. Why should anybody hear the gospel twice before everybody's heard it once? That's why we are a missionary sending organization as Southern Baptist. That's why evangelism and missions has been at the forefront since our beginning. And that's why we continue to be that sort of people. Missions and evangelism are the heads and tails of the same coin. You can't do one without doing the other, in my opinion. It's all the same thing as we talk about the Lord Jesus Christ and what he means to this world. But when you get to chapter 10 and you begin verse 1, you read here about the sending out of the 70, two by two. Now, this is in addition to the disciples, and I guess to those who had already been called who are there. But specifically, there's 70 that are sent out. And as I said just a moment ago, immediately in chapter in, in, uh, verse 2, he talks about there are few laborers. I've often wondered if there was more than 70 supposed to be there, if the Lord wanted more than those that were there, or was he specific on these stormtroopers that he was calling out? Because the qualifications for being in that 70, if you read about it, the line probably was not long waiting to be included. He said, don't take any money with you. Don't even take a, pair of, a spare pair of sandals. Uh, and I'm going to send you as lambs into a, to the wolves' dens. Son, it's going to be tough where you go. You're not going to be accepted by everybody. Some are not going to like what you're doing, but that's okay. They despised me before they despised you. Go and preach the gospel and heal and do all sorts of wonderful things in my name and for my namesake. And we see this taking place here in, in, in verse 1. We see in verse 17 that miracles abounded. I mean, they were doing things that were absolutely miraculous as lives were changed physically and spiritually. Jesus then is pleased as we get down to verse 21. He thanks the Father, and, and he's obviously pleased at what the 70 and the others that were with him had been able to accomplish and then confrontation comes. You, you know, there's a principle in Scripture, the devil after the dove. <laughs> the devil always shows up right after the dove. Right after the good things, you're going to see him pop up to try to take credit for uh, something that's not credit is due him or to cause some trouble or cause some dissension. And so right on the heels of, of Jesus being pleased that the 70 are going out and miraculous things are happening in the name of Jesus Christ, confrontation. And notice where it comes from, from the scholarly crowd, from a lawyer. A lawyer, and he stands up, and when you see that in the Bible, that is kind of a Bible idiom for the fact he was calling attention to himself. He stood up so that everybody would see him. Debates took place while people sat and talked, kind of like over a cup of coffee. I don't know if they had coffee back then, but you and I will sit down over a cup of coffee and talk. But if I stand up at the table and start talking, I'm calling attention. It, it was supposed to be a sign of authority. Sometimes it's not a sign of authority. It's a sign like this guy that you don't know what you're talking about. So let's begin in verse 25, Luke chapter 10. Let me read down through verse 29. And I remember we're thinking about this subject. How do I love God? And behold, a certain lawyer stood up. 
And the, in the language of the Bible, you don't see all of this here. If you go behind the words, you'll see that all of the, the verbiage and all that's taking place here, that this was a contemptuous kind of thing. He was doing this to trap Jesus, to tempt Jesus, saying, and here he is, standing up with his chest stuck out. Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, Jesus could have put him in his place right there starting off because, folks, you don't do anything to inherit anything. You don't have to do anything. All you have to do is be related to the one who is passing along. You, you understand what I'm saying? He, here's a lawyer, and he's saying, what do, what do I have to do to inherit something? Well, inheritance is a free gift. Amen? What do I have to do to get a free gift? Receive it. Just receive it. That's what you have to do. Jesus doesn't put him in his place there because this guy's stuffed full of himself. Jesus lets him go on, and so he opens his mouth and inserts his foot all the way up to the kneecap. Here we go, verse 26. Jesus said unto him, what is written in the law? You're a lawyer. How readest thou? It's interesting as you read scripture, and this, this carries all the way through. Anytime a person came to Jesus with an honest question, he answered it. But anytime somebody came to trap him, to tempt him, you'll notice he throws it back on them. He gives them a spin on it. He, he does something to put the, the, the responsibility back on them. He doesn't answer their question. He lets them answer their question, and that's exactly what's taking place here. Uh, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Well, what is written in the law? Son, if you think you have to do something, then obviously the Mosaic law would have told you how to do it, right? How readest thou? And he said, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy strength, with all thy mind, and thy neighbor is thyself. And here he quotes Scripture out of Deuteronomy and out of Leviticus, out of the old Mosaic law. And I'll have to give him that. He did know the Mosaic law. He did know what had been written. And Jesus compliments him on it. In verse 26, or excuse me, verse 28, he said unto him, Thou hast answered correctly. Go do it. And the gauntlet is thrown down. This do, and thou shalt live. You want to know how to inherit eternal life? You love God with everything in you. That is. And your neighbor is yourself. Now go do it. Notice the response, verse 29. But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus said to him, love God and love your neighbor. He says, hmm, I don't want to do any unnecessary loving, so I need to qualify who my neighbor is. You see how he's wiggling out of this. He's trying to, he's, Jesus didn't take the bait. And so now he's having to deal with his own words and he's convicting himself in his own court. He may have been a good jurist, but he was no theologian. He did not know what Jesus had been teaching and he really did not even know the content of what the law was that Moses was quoting, that he was quoting. How do we love God? This is what this man is asking, and this is the answer 
that we are seeking. The scholarly today, I believe, are asking the same thing. I believe this man is a perfect picture of the world that we live in today. The world today somehow thinks we have to do something for God. And they spell salvation do, 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 do this, do that. Act this way, do this thing, go sit on the top of a mountain, cross your legs and shave your head, put on a long flowing robe, cut yourself, do something to abase yourself and somehow that pleases God. The gospel doesn't say anything about you doing because it says it's already been done. All you have to do is receive that which has been done and there's no doing to it. Incidentally, what is it you can do to please God? Well, I, I, I'm at church this morning, preacher. Well, big deal. I'm sure God's saying, wow, look at there. They're at church this morning. I teach Sunday school. Well, good for you. I'm a pastor. I'm a preacher. What do we do to please God? The book of Hebrews says we do one thing to please God. We believe him. It's faith that pleases God. But this guy's got it all. He's trying, to, he's trying to tempt Jesus. He's trying to trap Jesus. And in doing so, he's helping us this morning to know what it means to love God. How do we love God? Well, it's right here before us. We are to love God, number one, with all thy heart. And the word heart there is a noun. And the word is K-A-R-I-D-A. Cardia. It's where we get the word C-A-R-D-I-A. When a person has a heart attack, it's a cardiac arrest. The doctors that deal with the heart are, are car cardiologists because that's where the word comes from. And so we're to love God with all of our cardia, all of our heart. And what does that mean? Again, preacher, talk to me about real things. Here you are using this word heart. Well, I don't know what that means. This is my heart, and you say love God with your heart. Well, friend, you love things with your heart. You said to your wife or your, or your uh, intended wife or your girlfriend, or if you like some of us, you said it to a lot of girls, I love you with all my heart. When you said that, when you say that, what do you mean? You're saying that, that with all that is in me is I love you. This week we had the uh, funeral service for my pastor's wife in Jacksonville, uh, Miss Pam Maynard, and it was a glorious service. It was a wonderful service. But I'm sure there were people there. In fact, some said to me, my heart's broken. What does that mean? didn't mean they had a heart attack. It meant that there was a part of them that just felt out of sync, that they hurt, they suffered physically because they missed Miss Pam. When the Bible here says we're to love God with all our heart, it's talking about our entire moral and mental activity, what I think about and what I emote about. Right now, I think about Susan. I love Susan, I think about her and I love her. I love her with all my heart. And so we're to love God the same way. 
We're to love God with all our cardia, all of our heart. But notice, we must go further. Not only do we love God with all our heart, we love God with all our soul. The word soul there is a noun. It's the word suke. It's where we get the word psychology, psychiatrist, psyche. It's all the same thing. It, it means who I am. The word literally means breath. But what it means, it, it means my entire being. It, it's who I am distinguished from you. All of us are the same, male, female. But we're all the same. What separates us to make us different? It, it's, my, it's my personality. It's my intellect, what there is of it. It's my temperament. That's what really makes me me. I, I'm the same as you. I'm, I'm just like any other man in this room. But what makes me different is my psyche, that part of me that distinguishes me from somebody else. The Bible says we're to love God with that part of us, that part of us that's the inner man, really. We have body, but the inner man is kind of the soul, and, and that, that soul is that distinguishing characteristic that makes us different from somebody else. Uh, that part of us that's hard to even explain. In the Bible sometimes, soul and spirit is used interchangeably. And, and you just have to look at the context of what it's talking about because it's very difficult to separate the two. In fact, the only thing that can separate the two is the Word of God. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 said, The Word of God is a living, it's alive, and it's sharper than any two-edged makara. That's a scalpel knife that a surgeon used. And, it's, and the Word of God is able to separate between soul and spirit. That soul, that's me, and the spirit, that part of me that wants to know God, that can know God. That's very hard to separate that sometime. It's the inner person. It's that inner working of me. My, my mind is one thing, but my soul is something else. My heart is where I love my soul is what makes me uniquely the person that I am. So I'm to love God with all my heart. I'm to love God through my personality, through my temperament, through that distinguishing characteristics in my life that make me different from you. I'm to love God in both. But it goes on. And that last part may be the most distinguishing part, at least for us today. Because quite honestly... I'm telling you stuff here you already know. Love God with all your heart. You say, preacher, I understand that. I don't know that I fully understand, but I understand what you're saying. We love God with all our heart. And we love God with who we are. Yeah, I understand that. But notice he goes on here to say, love God with all thy strength. And this is a noun also. Ischus is the word. And the word literally means Ability. It means might. It means strength. It means power. It means activity. In a sense, in a sense, my strength is what happens when I take my heart and my soul and put them both in gear and do something. 
My heart says I love certain things. I mentally understand certain things and I love them. My soul says I'm going to use those parts of me that distinguish me. I'm going to use those to honor God. So I take what I, I know I love and I take what I am and I put them together and there's activity. There, there's ability. There's something happens. There's work. There's energy being dispelled. My strength is being debilitated because I have put all of this together and now I'm doing something. So my strength is basically my activity, all my activity. And part of my activity is to work. Work is a good thing. We should work. God honors hard work for many reasons. Number one, it keeps us out of trouble. Too many people have too much time on their hand. I see it because they're tweeting to me every single day, hour upon hour upon hour. Way too much time on their hands. So God wants me to honor him with my strength, my ability, my work, my activity, those things that I do to provide for myself and provide for my family. I work in order to do that. I work in order to accomplish something, and I work in order that which I accomplish to be remunerated for it in one form or another. Now, I'm retired, and I'm looking for further remuneration, so any of you want to help out, just come right on. But not only is it what I'm doing, but it's what comes out of my doing. Let me put it to you this way. God is vitally interested in you. God is vitally interested in what you do. And what you do in this life with your strength is to earn a living. Preach, you get an amen on earning a living? Let's say I have a job, and in that job, I'm paid $5 an hour. And let's say that I work all day long, 10 hours. And let's just say for illustration that my employer pays me in cash at the end of each day. So $5 an hour time, 10 hours. Each day I'm given 50 bucks, $50 bill worth about $20 today. Anyway. He hands me that $50 bill because I have given him 10 hours of work. Now, those 10 hours of work that I worked are gone. That part of my life is gone. Never to be repeated. Oh, I can go to work the next day, but that's another 10 hours. Those 10 hours are gone, forever gone. But for those 10 hours, I exchanged my 10 hours for 50 bucks. Now, God's interested in what I do with my life. But let me tell you something else. God's interested in what I do in exchange for my life. When I worked those 10 hours and got 50 bucks, in a sense, now hopefully I accomplished something. You know, 
but $5 an hour is probably more than a yard. I mean, that's about, I accomplished something, but quite honestly, when I'm paid $50 for that, this becomes the most tangible expression of my life that exists. I've exchanged my life for 50 bucks. And God is interested in what I do with what I exchange my life for. You say, preacher, is this a stewardship message? No, it's not. It's about how to love God. You see, if your mind went, oh, it's stewardship, we've got to have money, you've missed the whole point. This is immaterial to God. Listen, God doesn't need your money as much as you need to give God your money. You know why? Because you tend to think this is yours. This isn't yours. God gave you the ability to do this. And God can take the ability away for you to get to do this. It's all of him. And so I'm not here trying to boost the church's income. I'm telling you how to love God and put things in perspective in your Christian life. Oh, I love God with everything up here. Oh, I love him. Oh, I just think of the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth forth his handiwork. Oh, when my mind thinks of that, I just love God. And oh, what Christ has done for me at Calvary. I love him, but I don't love him back here. Don't come to me with that when this is the most tangible expression of your life that exists. We're to love God with all our heart. We're to love God with all our soul. We're to love God with all of our strength. Do you know nobody can do that but Jesus Christ? So preacher... You're preaching something I can't do? That's exactly right. Aren't you glad for grace? You missed it on that one, folks. Let me go back and rewind because aren't you glad for grace? You see, it's God's grace that covers our inability and our insufficiency. I don't love God like I used to. I don't love God like I ought to. But blessed be God, he knows I love him as much as I possibly can. I struggle with it. He knows that. He knows I struggle with putting other things in place of him. He knows that. But he knows I struggle with it. God help me if I never struggle. You struggle with it. We all struggle with it. We're fallen creatures saved by the grace of God. And his grace, his matchless grace, covers my deficiencies and my insufficiencies. We're to love God with everything that's in us is. That's how we're to love God. And we can't do it. And he knows it. So when I get to a point that I'm at the end of what I can do, what I want to do, he says, done. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> done. Glenn, I know what you would do if you could do, but you're so weak you can't, but I know your heart. David couldn't build the temple because he's a man of God, but God said, I know your heart, and I'm marking it down as done. 
Folks, I don't know what you give to the church. I'm the interim pastor. I shouldn't know that. If I was the pastor, I wouldn't know that. Because I want to shoot down every hole. And if you're at the bottom of it, that's your problem. I don't want to ever know what somebody's giving. That way I can just say it the way I need to say it. Amen? I don't know what you give to this church. I don't know what you give for the cause of Christ outside this church. I hope you do that too. I don't know what you give. But I firmly believe that when we get to the other side, we wish we'd done more. Whatever it is we're doing, when we get over there, we'll wish we had done more. How do you love God? With everything you have and everything that's in you and everything that you want to be in you. God bankrupted heaven for you. Don't tell me you love God if there's not any part of your life that wants to help financially with the work of telling men, women, boys, and girls of his matchless, marvelous grace. Just don't tell me that. Amen? That's kind of weak, but after that, I'm, I'll take it. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, you say in your word that the love of money is the root of all evil. It's not money is evil. It's our attachment to it. And there's some folks, they go so far in loving God mentally, emotionally, even sacrificially in certain areas of their life, but somehow they feel like this area is sanctifying, that God's not involved in that. So, Lord, I pray that you'd free us to understand that giving, tithing, even sacrificial giving is not your way to raise money, but your way to raise children. And when we give with an open hand, not just money, but our entire life, who we are, it is a liberating factor in our life. So, Lord, I pray that you'll open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing to those who are sacrificially giving. As we move toward a time of great financial emphasis in our church, may we be found faithful in simply loving you who has loved us with such deep, deep love that it's in the person of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his, his name that we pray this morning.